Chapter Two of England, Canada, and the Great War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. England, Canada, and the Great War by Louis Georges Desjardins. Chapter Two: The Persistent Efforts of England in Favor of Peace. In 1891, Lord Salisbury, then Prime Minister of England, witnessing the constant progress of Prussian militarism on land and sea, and fully conscious of the misfortunes it was preparing for humanity, ordered an official statement to be made of the extravagant cost of the European military organization, and sent it confidentially to the German Kaiser, who took no notice of it. In 1896, Lord Salisbury lays before the Tsar of Russia all the information he has obtained on the question of militarism in Europe. On the 28th of August, 1898, the Emperor of Russia addressed to the world his celebrated manifesto in favour of peace. It urged, first, the necessity of a truly permanent peace, second, the limitation of military preparation which, in its ever-increasing development, was causing the economic ruin of the nations. The conferences of The Hague, in favour of an international agreement for the maintenance of peace, were the direct result of the initiative of the British Prime Minister, who foresaw the frightful consequences for humanity of the enormous development of militarism by the German Empire. All the great powers of Europe and America, together with the secondary states, at once heartily concurred with the proposition of the Tsar of Russia. Unfortunately, there were two sad exceptions to the consent to consider the salutary purpose so anxiously desired by those who valued as they should all the benefits the world would have derived from an international system assuring permanent peace. Germany and Austria, the latter already for years dominated by the former, opposed the patriotic move of the Emperor of Russia, suggested to him by Great Britain. They agreed to be represented at the conferences for the only object of thwarting the efforts in favour of a satisfactory enactment of new rules of international law to henceforth protect the world against a general conflagration, and to free the nations from the crushing burdens of a militarism daily developing more extravagant. Ministerial changes in Great Britain in no way altered this part of the foreign policy of the mother country. In 1905 Mr. Campbell Bannerman became Prime Minister of England. He was well known to be an ardent pacifist deprecating the mad increase of unchecked militarism, he said in his ministerial program, quote, A policy of huge armaments keeps alive and stimulates and feeds the belief that force is the best, if not the only, solution of international differences. End quote. On the 8th of March, 1906, Lord Haldane, then Minister of War, declared in the British House of Commons, quote, I wish we were near the time when the nations would consider together the reduction of armaments. Only by united action can we get rid of the burden which is pressing so heavily on all civilized nations. The second conference of The Hague, which took place in July and October 1907, was then being organized. Russia was again its official promoter. Well aware of the uncompromising stand of Germany on the question of reduced armaments, she had not included that matter in the program she had decided to lay before the conference. The British government did all they could to have it placed on the orders to be taken into consideration. A member of the Labour Party, Mr. Vivian, moved in the House of Commons that the conference of The Hague be called upon to discuss that most important subject. His motion was unanimously and enthusiastically carried. Informing the House that the Cabinet heartily approved the resolution, Sir Edward Grey, Secretary for Foreign Affairs, said, quote, I do not believe that at any time has the conscious public opinion in the various countries of Europe set more strongly in the direction of peace than at the present time, and yet the burden of military and naval expenditure goes on increasing. No greater service could it, 
that is the hague conference do than to make the conditions of peace less expensive than they are at the present time it is said we are waiting upon foreign nations in order to reduce our expenditure as a matter of fact we are all waiting on each other some day or other somebody must take the first step i do on behalf of the government not only accept but welcome such a resolution as this as a wholesome and beneficial expression of opinion in july nineteen o six a most important meeting of the interparliamentary union took place in london twenty-three countries enjoying the privileges in various proportions of free institutions were represented at this memorable congress of nations in the course of his remarkable opening speech of the first sitting mr campbell bannerman prime minister said quote, urge your governments in the name of humanity to go into the hague conference as we ourselves hope to go pledged to diminish charges in respect of armaments a motion embodying the views so earnestly pressed by the british government was unanimously carried on the fifth of march nineteen o seven only four months before the opening of the second hague conference mr campbell bannerman affirming the bounden duty of england to propose the restriction of armaments said in the british house of commons quote, holding the opinion that there is a great movement of feeling among thinking people in all the nations of the world in favour of some restraint on the enormous expenditure involved in the present system so long as it exists we have desired and still desire to place ourselves in the very front rank of those who think that the warlike attitude of powers as displayed by the excessive growth of armaments is a curse to europe and the sooner it is checked in however moderate a degree the better unfortunately german hostility to reduced armaments prevented any good result from the second hague conference in the way of checking extravagant and ruinous military organization there was sad disappointment in all the reasonable world and specially in england at this deplorable outcome mr campbell bannerman expressed it as follows quote, we had hoped that some great advance might be made towards a common consent to arrest the wasteful and growing competition in naval and military armaments we were disappointed unshaken in her determination to do her utmost to protect civilization against the threatening and ever-increasing dangers of german militarism england persisted with the most laudable perseverance in her noble efforts to that much desired end but all her pleadings however convincing were vain germany was obdurate finally on the thirtieth of march nineteen eleven speaking in the reichstag the german imperial chancellor threw off the mask and positively declared that the question of reduced armaments admitted of no possible solution quote, as long as men were men and states were states end quote. a more brutal declaration could hardly have been made it was a cynical challenge to the world times were maturing and germany was anxiously waiting for the opportunity to strike the blow which would stagger humanity through all the great crisis of july and august nineteen fourteen directly consequent upon the odious crime of sarajevo england exhausted all her efforts to maintain peace but unfortunately without avail knowing very well how much england sincerely wished the maintenance of peace the german government was to the last moment under the delusion that it could succeed in having great britain to remain neutral in a general european war they were not ashamed to presume they could bribe england without blushing they made to the british government the infamous proposition contained in the following dispatch from sir e goschen the british ambassador at berlin to sir edward gray the secretary of state for foreign affairs Quote, sir e goschen to sir edward gray received july twenty nine berlin july twenty nine nineteen fourteen telegraphic i was asked to call upon the chancellor to-night his excellency had just returned from potsdam he said that should austria be attacked by russia a european conflagration might he feared become inevitable 
owing to germany's obligation as austria's ally in spite of his continued efforts to maintain peace he then proceeded to make the following strong bid for british neutrality he said that it was clear so far as he was able to judge the main principle which governed british policy that great britain would never stand by and allow france to be crushed in any conflict there might be that however was not the object at which germany aimed provided that neutrality of great britain was certain every assurance would be given to the british government that the imperial government aimed at no territorial acquisitions at the expense of france should they prove victorious in any war that might ensue i questioned his excellency about the french colonies and he said he was unable to give a similar undertaking in that respect as regards holland however his excellency said that so long as germany's adversaries respected the integrity and neutrality of the netherlands germany was ready to give his majesty's government an assurance that she would do likewise it depended upon the action of france what operations germany might be forced to enter upon in belgium but when the war was over belgian integrity would be respected if she had not sided against germany his excellency ended by saying that ever since he had been chancellor the object of his policy had been as you were aware to bring about an understanding with england he trusted that these assurances might form the basis of that understanding which he so much desired he had in mind a general neutrality agreement between england and germany though it was of course at the present moment too early to discuss details and an assurance of british neutrality in the conflict which present crisis might possibly produce would enable him to look forward to realization of his desire in reply to his excellency's inquiry how i thought his request would appeal to you i said that i did not think it probable that at this stage of events you would care to bind yourself to any course of action and that i was of opinion that you would desire to retain full liberty our conversation upon this subject having come to an end i communicated the contents of your telegram of to-day to his excellency who expressed his best thanks to you to the foregoing outrageous proposition the government of great britain gave the proud and noble reply which follows for all times to be recorded in diplomatic annals to the eternal honour and glory of the ministers who incurred the responsibility of and of the distinguished diplomat who drafted that memorable document Quote, sir edward gray to sir e goshen telegraphic foreign office july thirty nineteen fourteen your telegram of twenty ninth july his majesty's government cannot for a moment entertain the chancellor's proposal that they should bind themselves to neutrality on such terms what he asks us in effect is to engage to stand by while french colonies are taken and france is beaten so long as germany does not take french territory as distinct from the colonies from the material point of view such a proposal is unacceptable for france without further territory in europe being taken from her could be so crushed as to lose her position as a great power and become subordinate to german policy altogether apart from that it would be a disgrace for us to make this bargain with germany at the expense of france a disgrace from which the good name of this country would never recover the chancellor also in effect asks us to bargain away whatever obligation or interest we have as regards the neutrality of belgium we could not entertain that bargain either having said so much it is unnecessary to examine whether the prospect of a future general neutrality agreement between england and germany offered positive advantages sufficient to compensate us for tying our hands now we must preserve our full freedom to act as circumstances may seem to us to require in any such unfavourable and regrettable development of the present crisis as the chancellor contemplates you should speak to the chancellor in the above sense and add most earnestly that the only way of maintaining the good relations between england and germany is that they should continue to work together to preserve the peace of europe 
if we succeed in this object the mutual relations of germany and england will i believe be ipso facto improved and strengthened for that object his majesty's government will work in that way with all sincerity and good will and i will say this if the peace of europe can be preserved and the present crisis safely passed my own endeavour will be to promote some arrangement to which germany will be a party by which she could be assured that no aggressive or hostile policy would be pursued against her or her allies by france russia and ourselves jointly or separately i have desired this and worked for it as far as i could through the last balkan crisis and germany having a corresponding object our relations sensibly improved the idea has hitherto been too utopian to form the subject of definite proposals but if this present crisis so much more acute than any that europe has gone through for generations be safely passed i am hopeful that the relief and reaction which will follow may make possible some more definite rapprochement between the powers than has been possible hitherto the british government could not take a more dignified stand and express their indignation at the infamous proposal in stronger and more noble terms let us now read the indignant protest of mr asquith the british prime minister against the outrageous german proposition addressed to the house of commons where it raised a storm of applause proclaiming to the world the dogged determination of england to wage war rather than agree to the dishonourable german proposal Quote, what does that amount to let me just ask the house i do so not with the object of inflaming passion certainly not with the object of exciting feeling against germany but i do so to vindicate and make clear the position of the british government in this matter what did that proposal amount to in the first place it meant this that behind the back of france they were not made a party to these communications we should have given if we had assented to that a free license to germany to annex in the event of a successful war the whole of the extra-european dominions and possessions of france what did it mean as regards belgium when she addressed as she has addressed in the last few days her moving appeal to us to fulfil our solemn guarantee of her neutrality what reply should we have given what reply should we have given to that belgian appeal we should have been obliged to say that without her knowledge we had bartered away to the power threatening her our obligation to keep our plighted word the house has read and the country has read of course in the last few hours the most pathetic appeal addressed by the king of belgium and i do not envy the man who can read that appeal with an unmoved heart belgians are fighting and losing their lives what would have been the position of great britain to-day in the face of that spectacle if we had assented to this infamous proposal yes and what are we to get in return for the betrayal of our friends and the dishonour of our obligations what are we to get in return a promise nothing more a promise as to what germany would do in certain eventualities a promise be it observed i am sorry to say it but it must be put upon record given by a power which was at that very moment announcing its intention to violate its own treaty and inviting us to do the same i can only say if we had dallied or temporized we as a government should have covered ourselves with dishonour and we should have betrayed the interests of this country of which we are trustees after quoting and eulogizing the telegraphic dispatch of sir edward grey to sir e goschen dated july thirtieth nineteen fourteen mr asquith proceeded as follows quote, that document in my opinion states clearly in temperate and convincing language the attitude of this government can any one who reads it fail to appreciate the tone of obvious sincerity and earnestness which underlies it can any one honestly doubt that the government of this country in spite of great provocation and I regard the proposals made to us as proposals which we might have thrown aside without consideration and almost without answer, 
can any one doubt that in spite of great provocation the right honourable gentleman who had already earned the title and no one ever more deserved it of peacemaker of europe persisted to the very last moment of the last hour in that beneficent but unhappily frustrated purpose i am entitled to say and i do so on behalf of this country i speak not for a party i speak for the country as a whole that we made every effort any government could possibly make for peace but this war has been forced upon us what is it we are fighting for every one knows and no one knows better than the government the terrible incalculable suffering economic social personal and political which war and especially a war between the great powers of the world must entail there is no man amongst us sitting upon this bench in these trying days more trying perhaps than any body of statesmen for a hundred years have had to pass through there is not a man amongst us who has not during the whole of that time had clearly before his vision the almost unequalled suffering which war even in just cause must bring about not only to the peoples who are for the moment living in this country and in the other countries of the world but to posterity and to the whole prospects of european civilization every step we took with that vision before our eyes and with a sense of responsibility which it is impossible to describe unhappily if in spite of all our efforts to keep the peace and with that full and overpowering consciousness of the result if the issue be decided in favour of war we have nevertheless thought it to be the duty as well as the interest of this country to go to war the house may be well assured it was because we believe and i am certain the country will believe we are unsheathing our sword in a just cause if i am asked what we are fighting for i reply in two sentences in the first place to fulfil a solemn international obligation an obligation which if it had been entered into between private persons in the ordinary concerns of life would have been regarded as an obligation not only of law but of honour which no self-respecting man could possibly have repudiated i say secondly we are fighting to vindicate the principle which in these days when force material force sometimes seems to be the dominant influence and factor in the development of mankind we are fighting to vindicate the principle that small nationalities are not to be crushed in defiance of international good faith by the military will of a strong and overmastering power i do not believe any nation ever entered into a great controversy and this is one of the greatest history will ever know with a clearer conscience and stronger conviction that it is fighting not for aggression not for the maintenance even of its own selfish interest but that it is fighting in defence of principles the maintenance of which is vital to the civilization of the world with a full conviction not only of the wisdom and justice but of the obligations which lay upon us to challenge this great issue we are entering into the struggle the german government refusing to order their army to retire from the belgian territory it had violated at midnight fourth to fifth august nineteen fourteen the whole british empire was at war with the whole german empire surely there is not the slightest necessity to argue any more that in the terrific war raging for the last four years justice and right are on the side of england and her allies no war was ever more just waged with equal honour for the triumph of liberty and civilization for the protection of humanity against the onslaught of barbarism developed to the cruelty of the darkest ages of history End of chapter two